the next wave podcast hashtag no filter What's good, everybody, and welcome to episode two of the hashtag No Filter Podcast, Beefing with the Boss. You ever felt like you had it good and then all of a sudden things switched up and just became terrible? Have you ever been pushed to the edge by your boss or supervisor for who knows what? Are you just sick and tired of being sick and tired? Well, trust me, I got something for you today. Episode two is going to be a two-part adventure where we follow the charted courses of two dynamic leaders organizing efforts, beginning with the origin of their campaigns to an outline of a legit standoff with management. And then we're going to come full circle and explore how they persevered to make sure that they had a seat at the table and would no longer be on the menu. Again, welcome to episode two, and this is chapter one, The Origin. Since our last episode, I've been spending just about every waking moment thinking about ways we can build power and strengthen our movement. I thought about getting more shirts out to increase visibility for our programs. I played around with creating new video content that I felt like would be in, people would be into. I even considered perfecting this app idea that I thought would be a great resource for union members. But none of these ideas really scratched the itch that I had as I felt like there was still something more that could be done. So I began to think about organizing. You know, I went through the different types of campaigns I'd worked on, and I dug deep into internal and external organizing. I even started talking to myself. I'm not crazy, I promise. But I was talking to myself about the different probes I've seen, and before I knew it, I'd become lost in my own head. To declutter my thoughts, I decided to seek out a few people who had been intricate in organizing drives themselves in an attempt to hone in on what it was I was searching for. So in my search, I ran across an article about a young woman named Jessica Elul. She lives in Connecticut. She worked in a, at a hospital in Danbury, appropriately named after the city in which it resided. Danbury is the only acute hospital in the area, so it is essential to the surrounding community. I remember reading that she referred to the hospital as her home, and I wanted to know more about why folks felt like they needed the union in a place that someone would literally call their home. I'd finally tracked her down and decided it would be a good time to get some background info. Yeah, so Danbury's um, a quaint little town in Connecticut. It's about an hour from Hartford. We're known as the Mad Hatters here. There used to be a large hat factory. It's a small town. It's a small city, but everybody kind of knows each other. The employer that I work for is one of the largest in the area. They employ in the main building alone about 3,000 employees. So yeah, everybody kind of knows everybody. It's a good place to grow up. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody inside the hospital knew everybody. Everybody in the community knew everybody. Everybody knew the doctors. The doctors knew everybody. Um, and the coworkers, we all felt like we were family um, working together. I remember my parents used to say that they would like going into work early and they would leave late because it was such a family environment that you liked being around each other. You liked doing the work. You liked, um, you just liked the environment and everything that you were around, you know? So it it was... It was a real family environment where you felt supported and you felt like everyone kind of had your back. So it sounds like you really love where you work. I remember I wanted to work there so desperately. And my parents were like, Jessica, you got to get a job. You're 16 years old. Like, get a job, Jessica. And I'm like, no, I want to work at the hospital. It took me four years with my whole entire family working there. It took me four years to still get a job. But I was persistent. (laughs) And if you I mean, I would apply. I was in I was just, you know, in high school, but I wanted something there. So I was like, I'll look for anything for 16 hours just so I can go to school, yeah. obviously, and still wor- and, and work there. 
And eventually, four years later, I got a job. Um, but if people knew you worked at the hospital and they wanted to work at the hospital, they were like around you like flies. Like, how do we get in the hospital? Can you give them? Can you give them my name? Like, this is the place I want to work. It was like this draw because I think people knew that it was this family environment and it was a good place to work where they treated you really well. As and it was just people were desperate to get in there. And once you got in, you never left. I mean, people were retiring after 40, 50 years. I mean, whether you got a job there and you started in one position and you stayed in that one position or you moved up and you you know, moved into other positions, you stayed there. You never left that institution ever. By now, I'm sure you've gathered that family and this reoccurring theme of her workplace being a home have resonated very well with Jessica. So I wanted to dig a little deeper and figure out how her coworkers felt about the workplace. People felt there was a lot of stability working there. Um, you never heard about layoffs. Like le- you never heard about anything like that. You ne- nice. you heard they had holiday parties. They you know at the at the holidays you would walk outside and there'd be a big truck and everybody would get a turkey or a ham for their Thanksgiving or their holiday meal. Um, every single employee got that. They. They would give you longevity um, gifts. They would have parties to celebrate you. If you were retiring, they would celebrate you and all the work that you um, put in. And But they also helped you with your education. So if you wanted to start off as, say, like a housekeeper or a transporter, but your goal was to ultimately become a nurse or a physician or whatever it was, they offered... Um, education assistance. So if you worked for them and you agreed to maybe stay even a year after your education was done, they would agree to pay for nearly your entire education. So there were those advantages and, um, you know, it was like a family. Everybody supported you, but they supported you as you moved up too. And they they offered you all kinds of incentives to advance yourself. So with things appearing so great, I began to become a little suspicious. You know, if I had to, I described Danbury Hospital as kind of like a utopian workplace up until this point. And so a lot of times when we see a particular industry or particular work site have great working conditions, great benefits, great standards, there's been some work done by a union, either in that workplace or around that workplace. And so what I did know about Danbury Hospital is that the nurses there had already had a union for quite some time. So I engaged Jessica about that. So the nurses at the hospital have had a union for over 30 years now. Okay. And whatever they, they have a really great contract. You know, you build on it every year, 30 years, you got a really good contract. So whatever they got in their contract, basically everybody got within the hospital, any kind of incentive, any kind of bonus, any kind of retirement clauses, anything, it kind of pension, like it all kind of trickled down to everybody. They also valued our opinion as employees. The, the organization itself, like I remember the president of the hospital, Frank Kelly, he would come around or the former president, I should say, he would come around. It, it wasn't rare to see him sitting on the unit in the nurse's station, chatting with the nurses, finding out what's going on, getting a feel of what was happening in the department because he was sitting there feeling it, you know? Um, so when we or anybody went to him and had a suggestion of something to change or like to improve or or anything, they would actually sit and listen and they would take that to heart and they would use it to maybe build upon or to maybe make improvements. So here we have this good-natured CEO, a staple in the community. He's visible in the hospital. He's talking to the employees all the time. Has an open-door policy, even. Sounds good, right? But hold on. Here's a plot twist. There was a change when Mr. Kelly retired, where they 
um, appointed a new president. He was, or he still is, well, now he's the CEO, but at the time he was the new president and everyone thought this would be a great thing. He was a, he was a physician, a well-respected physician who even took care of my own family members and people in the hospital said, this is going to be great. He's, he's worked on the units. He's seen everything. He knows how difficult it can be for us at times, right. you know, when we're in the thick of it, this is going to be a great thing. And it, ended up not being because as soon as he got into that position it was like cut after cut after cut it was more of a dictatorship than a partnership um and because the nurses were lucky enough to have their contract they couldn't really take anything away from them so it all fell on the backs of everyone who didn't have a contract it opened our eyes and we said wait a minute we used to have a say in our working conditions and now we don't I couldn't stop my mind from wondering as Jessica spoke. The new person had come in and shaken things up for the entire hospital. I felt like I was prying, but I had to get more details. We had, a, we had to pause our conversation briefly, but when we resumed, my fears were realized. We get shift differentials. If you okay. work evening shift or night shift, you get shift differentials. I remember shortly after, for me in, in particular, shortly after he became uh, president, I accepted a job on the evening shift, the same department doing the same thing I'm doing. I just went to evening shift and I figured, Mm -hmm. I had payroll figured it out. Look, I was gonna make another 10 grand a year by picking up one extra shift a day plus the differential. I was gonna make an extra 10 grand and I was like, why wouldn't I do this, right? Two weeks after I accepted that, he decided to cut the differentials in half. So now I wasn't making 10 grand extra a year. I was now making maybe two grand extra a year. So. But the nurses kept their differential. They had it in their contract, you know. Um, They cut the differentials. They cut, uh, they stopped the 403B. They kept the 401, they started 401K. They stopped the 403B for the retirement plan. They froze pensions um, for majority of people except the nurses because of their contract. They they cut the education. Um, So now instead of, it didn't matter what your control hours were. You still were able to get reimbursement for education. And they cut that. They now required a certain amount of control hours that a lot of employees couldn't obtain because they couldn't go to school full time and work full time and obtain the level that was necessary now to get the reimbursement. Right. So that impacted a lot of people. Um, they stopped the holiday parties which was great because it was almost like a team building exercise to go to these parties to kind of let loose and dance and have fun with your coworkers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they cut those parties, they stop with the hams and the turkeys. And listen, if you're a housekeeper who's making $11 an hour, you relied on that turkey for your Thanksgiving meal. You know what right. I mean? So that was huge. People were really upset that they cut the hams and the turkeys. It was a lot of little things that they cut, but it made a really big impact. I couldn't stop my mind from racing as Jessica spoke. This new CEO had come in and shaken things up for the entire hospital. I felt like I was prying, but I had to get more details. We had to pause on our conversation briefly, but when we resumed, I wanted to dig right into what conditions had changed. It wasn't rare to have like six nurses on a unit for every shift and four nurses aides, right? So there's a lot, plus a unit coordinator. So there's a lot of people to go around to care for the patients. You had like maybe six patients a piece, right? That's a good number to to be able to care for the patients. And then when the cuts started happening, it's like you're taking care of 12 patients or more a piece, you know, and 
you can't do everything for the patient. You can't do what's required to care for the patient when you have that many patients, especially in acute care settings, you know? Um, so the patients started to feel that. The patients, I mean, we have patients now, and management has said to us, do not go into a room and tell them, I'm sorry, I was busy with another patient, or I couldn't get to you because of whatever. And we tell them, we don't have to say anything to anybody. They apologize to us. They're like, I'm sorry, I know you're busy. I just need to, I need help getting to the bathroom or like whatever it is, or I'm sorry to bother you. I just need pain meds. It's like, it, it kills you when they say that to you because it's like, you don't ever want them to feel that way. So this transition was obviously tough on the staff in relation to the patients, but I really wanted to see how exactly the patients experience, you know, this recent change in cuts and cutbacks and how the short staffing impacted them and affected their lives. Anyway, the patients started feeling it and the community, this is the hospital they go to. Norwalk Hospital is 45 minutes one way, more south towards the city. And New Milford Hospital is like 30 minutes north, but they aren't acute care, you know? So this was the place to go. It's the only place to go that was around here. Um, unless you want to go into the city, unless you want to go all the way into um, into New York. So, but also if you were sick, you wanted to come to Danbury Hospital. You wanted to be cared for by the community. You wanted to be cared for by the doctors and the and the staff that you know and that you were comfortable with. You know, so when these cuts started happening and it started affecting the patients and they started seeing it and they started feeling it, it was like what do we do? Like, I'm going to go to the hospital, I'm going to sit in the ER for three hours before I get seen, or I'm going to go to the units, I'm going to be admitted, and I'm going to have to wait 45 minutes for my pain meds, or I have to go to the bathroom, and this person is taking care of 12 patients, how can they possibly get to me? So it started to really change the way people thought about the institution as a whole. She went on to describe how she and her coworkers loved the patients, and I began to gather that this was the final straw for many folks. So, seeing that things had drastically changed for the patients and staff, I felt like this was the aha moment for Jessica and her coworkers. I felt like this was their origin moment. So, we would kind of whisper to each other at work, but we were kind of new to it, right? So, we didn't mm -hmm. really, we knew that it would be um, controversial if we just like openly talked about bringing in a union. Why so? Um, How so? I feel like management would kind of be like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Like you know, not really be like, okay, guys, let's help you organize, you know, right. where it would be like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Like, why, why do you need a voice? Like, what do you mean you need a voice? No, you work for us. You listen to us. No. So we started meeting at McDonald's after work. We started meeting, we all work different shifts too. That was the thing. So I was like on evenings, a couple of people were on evenings, a couple of people were overnights, a couple of people were days. So we would meet anywhere at any time, at any hour. We'd meet at a Dunkin' Donuts, at a Starbucks, at a McDonald's. We would meet anywhere. We would meet in the lounge. We would meet in a storage closet in the hospital if nobody <laughs> was if nobody was around. But we would be smart about it because I'd be like, okay, I'm on my 15 minute break. I'll run downstairs and I'll meet you now. Or like, I'll take my dinner break. I'll bring my sandwich, but I'll run downstairs and I'll meet you now. So it wasn't like they can come after us and be like, what were you doing off of the unit for 30 right, minutes? You know. Right. So. We were smart about it, but we were also kind of stealthy. We would meet anywhere at any time for any reason and discuss it. Then we have Crystal, a young case manager in Chicago working with inner city youth. She's had some challenges organizing at her facility, but has also had real victories that landed her and her coworkers at the bargaining table. Everybody has their personal reason as right. to why they've, you know, voted the union in. I think from my perspective, there was a lot of nepotism. There was mm. a lot of um, favoritism and 
It was the lack of resources for us to be able to better serve the youth. So tell me about UCAN. It sounds like UCAN is in the heart of the city, right? Well, uh, so we have various locations. Oh, we're okay. all, yeah, we're all across um, the city and out in the suburbs as well. Um, currently, well, the residential treatment facility is located on the west side of Chicago in the North Lawndale community. So what are some of the things that UCAN offers or what are some of the things that you like about working at UCAN? UCAN does a really good job of, of covering pretty much all aspects of what a community or what an individual would need. So the residential building where I am located right now, we have a full like uh, gym. So that is offered to the community. They can come in. Other organizations can use our facility as well. Now, inner city Chicago has a bad name in terms of violence. How does this affect your work or does it impact your job and where you work at all? Well, you know, it's, it impacts our job as direct, you know, well, social service providers and direct care workers because we have to, it's our job to keep them safe. Right. You know, so, you know, if the community is not safe, then we have to do even more to be, you know, hypervigilant when we're out in the community taking the youth, you know, um, on different trips. What led you to become so passionate about this type of work? Did you just stumble upon this or have you been around this work for a while? I was always curious to know why people uh, choose professions that are direct care because it's not a glamorous job. And <laughs> I can bet nine times out of 10, you guys aren't paid uh, nearly what you're worth and the amount of things that you have to go through. So what was it that drew you to, to that job? Well, you know, I come from a family of politicians. My parents were both politicians. So um, community service, civic service, a grassroots organization um, that all of that was, you know, ingrained and instilled in me as a kid. Considering this work is so necessary yet so emotionally draining, I will hope that they pay the staff well. How's pay where you work? We all do this 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 hard work, and we're all sitting on the dorm together across from each other. One person might be sitting at the door while another person is running groups, right. while another person is in the office, you know, uh, completing the comm log for the for today's shift, and the the pay differentials between those three individuals you know, were extreme. So I know you mentioned safety being a big deal at this facility. Given the location, what kind of security is being provided for you? We still have like very little to no security on the premises of this brand new, you know, facility, which consists of two large buildings on a very huge campus, which I think it extends like a full block. Okay. our campus. So um, we don't have nowhere near the security that we expected. And that we should have. So it sounds like you're really passionate about your job and the nature of the work. How long have you been working there? You know, tell me about your journey. So I've been here for four years. Okay. It will be four years in August. Congratulations. Um, thank you. I started out as a residential treatment specialist, specialist which is a direct care worker, mm -hmm. um, working on the dorms with the older girls. And then I was uh, promoted to case manager a year and a half after that. So it sounds like you all get a range of cases with these clients. What are some of the services you provide to them? We provide life skills training. Um, as a case manager, we, I cover every aspect of an, you know, our clients' lives as far as academic 
um, medical, um, what else, court. We get, you know, those youth that um, their behaviors aren't managed in, in any normal setting. Mm-hmm. Their behaviors or their mental diagnosis requires them to be in a locked facility to um, receive this treatment and um, hopefully then transition. So it's almost like they have to take a break from uh, a normal life for 12 to 18 months. Dealing with these types of kids, you're going to need a staff that's really trained and seasoned to help them through these tough situations. How would you describe your coworkers in terms of managing these cases? It's a tough job, you know, but... What I can say, we have a lot of veteran staff here at UCAN, which says a lot about the compassion that, you know, our members, because we, you know, we are, we are you know, unionized. Right, right, right. It says a lot about the compassion and the commitment that, you know, exists here in the staff. And that's something that I really want management to acknowledge and, and, um, and respect. The more she talked, the more I began to realize that these folks really cared about the community they were there to serve. The success of the selfless mission taken on by these men and women was the, was the reward. And anything that threatened to impede that progress of assisting the Chicago and youth had to be dealt with. I found what folks call the motivation when speaking with Crystal. I heard the passion and dedication in her voice. So I discovered the powder keg, or the mixture of ingredients needed to cause people to rise up and demand a voice. But the journey was far from over. We'd only scratched the surface and had accounted for one side of this struggle for respect and dignity. A much deeper and darker threat loomed as workers joined each other and began to publicly show united fronts. Was this enough? Was there more that needed to be done outside of logistics? How long would victory take? And what would that actually look like? Be sure to follow along with chapter two, where the boss enters the fray, and we get a clear picture of how terrifying beefing with the boss can really be. All right, next waivers. I hope you enjoyed the first chapter of Beefing with the Boss and hearing from Jessica and Crystal. The plot thickens literally in chapter two, where we actually reach a standoff with management. Have you seen similar things happen at your workplace? Do you have friends or family who work in places where the conditions match those of UCAN or Danbury that we talked about in this episode? Remember, we're literally talking about building power and strengthening our movement. So if this is so, be sure to join the Podcast Academy if you haven't already. Once you've done that, fill out what we call an Ask Me Growth Card, which will be sent out to you. You can also find a guide for workplace actions that will be helpful if you're looking to build power in your own workplace. Remember, joining the Academy is a way to keep us connected so that we can tackle this work together. Again, this is Adrian with the hashtag NoFilterPodcast signing off. Until next time, family. <laughs>